Hello and welcome to Talking Moves, a podcast from Greenwich Dance where dance artists come together to talk about their work and practice, the things that matter and the issues which move them. I'm Melanie Precious and in this episode I'm talking with two artists about environmental responsibility. Many of us have long recognised our role in this, but perhaps the last two years of lockdown, as we lived in our parks and gardens, when we saw our skies fill with birdsong and our roads quieten, has unlocked a willingness for more of us to take action. But what does action look like for our sector? We talk to two artists to find out. Marla King, dancer, climate activist and podcast host, and Adam Benjamin, joint founder of Kanduko Dance Company and founder of the project A Dancer's Forest. Welcome both of you. Thanks for joining us. So firstly, I wondered if you'd give us a little in a nutshell biography, run us through your dancing journey, kind of irrespective of environment at this point, but just to place listeners into where you are artistically before we dig into today's conversation. And Marla, I wondered if you'd start us off, just tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So I'm predominantly now a freelance dance artist based in Cardiff, alongside my climate justice activism. I think it took a long time and is still a journey of figuring out how they intersect best they used to feel like slightly different worlds and I questioned a lot whether as an artist I could be in those spaces and contribute and I've come to learn how important and powerful the arts is in climate action but in terms of my dance journey I trained at Northern School of Contemporary Dance for three years and then went on to an apprenticeship with National Dance Company Wales which is what brought me back to Cardiff but I'm from Wales originally and then the pandemic happened towards the end of that apprenticeship so kind of delved straight into freelancing since then I've worked with some choreographers including Gwyn Emberton, Rhiannon Faith, Mathieu Jeffrey and Alicia Drennan and I also work quite closely with a community dance organisation called Impella who are based in Llandrindod which is a small town in rural Wales and I really do feel grateful to work with people who value a humanity and have been really open when I've shared thoughts and suggestions around my sort of environmental perspectives and ways of working. I suppose that's a little bit of a nutshell. Lovely. Adam how about you? Well, my training was quite a long time ago now, but it was at what was then Middlesex Polytechnic before it changed into a university and a conservatoire. I came out of that and very quickly sort of tumbled really into Kanduko, which grew out of workshops that I led with Celeste Dandeker in the early 1990s. Kanduko took up kind of the first chunk of my professional life, and then I moved on to do lots of work at kind of far-flung places, so out into Africa, Ethiopia, South Africa, shortly after apartheid, and then a lot of work in Japan, working freelance and making work for different companies as well. So I suppose my interest at that time was really about diversity and how dance could be used in a way to build connections between things that didn't necessarily look like they would go together in the same place. I think in more recent times, you know, it's a funny thing to say, but inspired by the pandemic, beginning to think more about biodiversity and how all of the things that we do connect. You know, we might not think that something's connected, but actually if we dig deep enough, it doesn't take us very long to go, oh, there is a connection there. And then to start thinking about what I might do about that. And that sort of thought process is what led to the Dancers Forest. We're going to dig into that project in particular in a bit, but I did want to ask you both. I mentioned in my intro about how I think perhaps lockdown and the pandemic has shifted our focus or sharpened our focus maybe and wondered how that had played out for the two of you. When I was researching I was actually quite surprised to find out that the Arts Council were the first organisation to embed environmental reporting within their funding agreements and perhaps more surprisingly that they've been doing it for 10 years and that might just be because I haven't been reporting to the Arts Council for that time so therefore haven't been involved in that and that's why I didn't realise it but it does feel that things have sharpened over this last couple of years that we've suddenly got quite clear about the roles we play in it. How does that play out for you? What's changed for you with this subject in mind? Adam? Maybe I can look at the year before everything fell apart. Mm -hmm. Uh, So 2019, I had three major projects that year alongside all the sort of smaller bits and pieces that freelance world entails. The three big projects were a big community production in Lisbon, which involved two flights there and back, there and back, a project fairly locally in Plymouth, are making. One of our performers came from Belgium, another from Poland. And another project I did was a collaboration with a Japanese kind of ethical, ecological clothing fashion designer. 
and the artists that were working with him, who again flew from Japan. So you can probably already see that all three of those very lovely projects involved an awful lot of traveling. To make matters worse, the production that I made, which was for Exim Dance Company, toured, I mean, like everybody, it didn't have much of a life, but it toured to Italy for one night and came back. And I suppose I'm not alone as a dance artist in that kind of freelance world where you do this bit and that bit and that bit. And, you know, I was aware that I was involved in traveling and I was offsetting my miles. I've been doing that for quite a long time. But when lockdown came and, you know, you described earlier that notion of those quiet roads, that I could walk out of my house here and down the main road, mm. down the valley to the bridge and it was just amazing that there were no cars. And that quiet time that, you know, everyone in freelance, everyone I know for years has been saying, oh God, we just need some time to think. We're always so busy. And the pandemic, another one of the gifts of the pandemic was it gave us thinking time. And I really did. I thought, this is so good. There aren't any cars going. There are no planes. So it was that kind of thinking that kind of shifted me. And I thought, I can't pick up where I left off. Yes, things have got to change. We've got to make Mm. that change significant. How about you, Marla? You were nodding away through that. Yeah, definitely. A big thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently as well is because during the time of the lockdown, I was having more involvement in climate justice spaces. A lot of it was digital at the time. I questioned a lot if I would go back to dancing. But yeah, I think for me, what I noticed was a big shift was a lot more conversations coming out about the climate crisis and what people could do about it. And I started questioning a lot the need for the intersection of all of the issues we face in society, which is why the climate and social justice element, they can't be disconnected. And I think there's a big worry that in very mainstream media, it can sometimes become super individualized. And at times we do need to recognize sort of like the collective focus of action that we can take or understand how the system systemic injustices within society filter into who can take action and who can't take action and who feels empowered to take action because there's so many things that we can all do collectively and how do we embed that in community and what role can the arts have in really fundamentally making that shift happen. And yeah, as I was saying, I felt like there was a separation at first between arts practice and climate action, but actually there's a real need to humanise a lot of the conversations. You know, there's so much science data out there, for example, that maybe Mm. isn't particularly accessible or doesn't really make people feel. And we need to actually lean into the fact that it is terrifying what's happening. It's incredibly overwhelming when we look at the state of the world quite generally and I think sometimes there's this sort of ostrich effect of just putting your head in the sand and ignoring that it's happening and actually we need to lean into the fact that it's okay to feel overwhelmed at times and that actually if more people were open about feeling that way the pressure off especially a lot of young people who feel potentially like the older generation might have failed them they can feel held in that people are taking action rather than Mm. just feel like the weight is on them as individuals to change everything so Mm. I think that sort of collectivity and need for recognizing the root causes of the climate crisis and really delving in there and not being afraid to ask difficult questions when you know company comes out and talks about a sustainability framework and questioning is it ethical is there justice at the root of that Mm. and I think that all of the questioning is something that arts has a really powerful role in is opening up that dialogue in a place where we have space to learn and question and not feel like we need to know everything and also imagination this is a huge thing as well that I think is just so essential is that There's a lot more information around the climate crisis, around issues that are happening. But in terms of feeling motivated and empowered to take action, that's, I think, where the arts has such a fundamentally beautiful role to play. And there's something about lockdown and that period of stopping, as Adam's pointed out, that shifted our behaviours so greatly that suddenly we were able to perhaps rethink how we did things, which we might not have done as easily on a treadmill as everyone had to stop and do things differently, didn't they? Yeah. And your point about individuals and collectivity, that's really interesting. And I wanted to ask you about that as well, Adam, because again, in preparation for this, I was reading your blog on people dancing, which I think was going to be entitled Dirty Dancing, and you kind of re-angled it a little to reflect where we were. And you were reflecting on the impact that touring was making, just as you have done today, and the work that you were making and the impact that that had had on the planet. I pulled this from it. You said, we're dancing while Rome burned. And so for you, the realisation of touring in particular, I suppose, and your lifestyle 
came to you, but I wondered whether you think individual dancers had been spending much time up until that point thinking about environmental impact, because I was actually surprised to find out how much of an impact our dancing sector alone, not even talking about theatre and the wider cultural, but just our dance sector had. And you made that point in that article as well. Yeah, I I wanted to ask Marla a question, because if I may kind of loop back, it's so good to hear you talking about the power of the arts to influence and to change. But I wonder how much focus was brought to that during your training at Northern. None. In all honesty, I had not one single lecture. And and I'm not saying that to slate a specific organisation. I think generally no, no. it's just not a conversation that's really being had. Mm. And I now deliver training on behalf of SAIL, who are a, an organisation based in Leeds. It stands for Sustainable Arts in Leeds. So mm. they want to support the arts and culture sector in feeling empowered to take climate action. But why should it take until you finished your education for that mm. to be there? And I know they're now doing really good work in trying to go into institutions and bring that in. But you're setting people up to go into a world that's not going to be the way you're working because fundamentally the way we're working needs to change so that's definitely something that needs to be addressed and needs to be embedded I think sometimes climate action is seen as like an add-on and actually it needs to be embedded in the way we work so regardless of what a project's focus point it needs to be embedded in how we function rather than just oh maybe we should think about this at the end of the project when it's already too late because a lot of decisions have already been made yeah yeah it's a really interesting question you ask that Adam because I personally don't feel that from a dance sector until someone like the Arts Council comes along and says oh and by the way how are you reporting against environmental sustainability that that's been something that has been at the top of our agenda it's not been on the agenda really not in dance more likely you're going to have those conversations on a theatre programme if it's a making creating theatre degree but sadly I think we just happily dance around it and I think it's vital. I suppose I'll get on a bit of a hobby horse here, but I think that so much of dance training focuses on getting young people to follow instructions carefully and precisely, and not enough of it focuses on getting them to ask difficult questions. And so the danger in the way that our dance training is shifting is towards more conservative conservatoire models in which those spaces are not valued. So you're really in the process of developing compliant young people who will do what they're told. And that's a wonderful thing about when dancers are well-trained and you come to work with them. They're the best human beings in the world because you ask them to do something that's crazy and impossible and they will try until they drop. And it's wonderful. But the flip side of that is where are the hard questions? Mm. And if you're asking them to do something that they really don't want to do or they don't feel is right, where's the training and the development that takes place during their training that helps them say, actually, I don't want to do that. Or actually, I don't want to dance here. You know, those are the questions that we need to be encouraging young people in their training to ask. I wondered as well, and it feels like, Marla, you're speaking for a generation of dancer here, which feels slightly unfair (laughs) but I've certainly not come across another climate activist and dancer although I'm sure there are many but I do feel there's a growing sense amongst younger people anyway of this responsibility we have as humans to the planet and I think as you pointed out earlier there's also a bit of resentment that it feels like the responsibility is being pushed down onto the younger generation. But I wondered whether you sensed from your training, from your cohort of students, or even in the groups that you're working with now, where there's a shifting or growing change amongst this new generation of dancer. Are you starting to do that questioning that Adam's just been talking about for yourselves, even though it might not be there within your training? Or are there just individuals you think that are kind of becoming interested? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. I feel like it is quite context specific of the working environment and the people but I have always felt that when I've brought up any conversations, there has been a space for them to be listened to. And I think even with my colleagues that I work with, this is an issue that they really do care a lot about. But it's the difference between feeling like whether your voice would be heard or valued in saying those things that would lead to fundamental change. So it's something that I think I've become better at doing in questioning myself, that when I'm in a process, I have those conversations, I want to know 
whether those values are something that are actually being addressed or being thought about throughout the process. And it's good to know when you are working with colleagues who support that and sharing that. I think it's a really beautiful thing. And I think a lot of people fundamentally really do care, but sometimes there's a disconnect between what you can do in your personal life and what you can actually achieve within the organization you work with. Or if you're freelancing and you're constantly working with different choreographers or different organizations, you know, you can try and kind of implement change, but it lies also with the people that are there full time that can move that along. And also, I suppose as well, thinking about my training, I didn't have any workshops around these kind of subjects that then even if you hold those values, how do you align your actions with those values if you haven't been given the support to do that. So also there's a a level of accountability within organisations who if they commission an artist, they voice that we are going to be considering the environmental implications of this project, but we want to support you along that process so that that can also inform the rest of the ways you work with other organisations that might not be offering that support yet. So I think really embedding there, not just saying, yes, this is something we care about and this is something we're working on doing, but how do you collaborate and work together and learn from other people within the sector doing those things already and learning from each other and just opening up more of a supportive space for people to move forwards rather than Mm -hmm. feeling like you have to have all of the answers before you can do anything because that can be a scary thing too if you voice a question and then they're like okay what do you do about it I can't answer every single question unless I know every single in and outs of the organization and then other people will feed into that conversation so I think it is allowing that space for a supportive network of people to implement those changes. And you are also a carbon literacy trainer and I wondered whether you would tell us a little bit about what that is and how you came to be one. Yeah so obviously during the lockdown a lot of my work became a lot more things online and working for different youth-led organisations that were involved in climate justice work and I came across the SAIL carbon literacy training workshop and I was like I want to do that I want to learn about what this is I hadn't heard the term before myself and then doing the training I feel like I must have been the most annoying person on the call because I just had so many questions after a lot of the slides because there's also this big thing I think within the arts is the humanity side of it and sometimes of course there's such an important role in reducing carbon footprint but how do we do that in a just and ethical way as well so I had a lot of questions going throughout and I sent a message to the person running the training at the time to be like sorry for so many questions thank you for the training I learned a lot it was great I was wondering how you got into doing what you were doing turns out that they were going to be going on paternity leave and were looking for someone to train up to deliver the training Um, so then they really kindly supported me in the training and were also really receptive to some of the questions that I had as well and so we were also working to adapt some of the training course to answer some of those additional questions or put additional signposts in so that people felt like they could continue on that avenue as well afterwards so then I started delivering it and basically what the training fundamentally includes is for the sale one there's the online learning section which is a lot about where we are how did we get to where we are how do we know that the climate crisis is happening what are the implications really embedding the recognition that we're not all equally responsible and we're not all equally experiencing the horrific impacts. So really looking into the social inequality around that as well. And then you have the online interactive session, which some people also deliver in person, which focuses a lot more on what are we doing as a society at the moment, what changes are happening and what changes are happening and can be implemented in our sector. So then really delve into a lot more what we can do, who are our spheres of influences, looking at sustainable procurement, looking at travel, looking at energy, looking at divesting from fossil fuels, like really delving into the different areas of how we can take meaningful action, looking obviously at the reduction of carbon emissions, but also focusing on what comes beyond that as well. How do we really embed this very justice-centered approach as well? So in a sort of nutshell, that's how I got into that. That's absolutely fascinating. And with that, I wondered what both of your reactions to this might be. So again, I was digging around and in a recent Julie's Bicycle report, and just for any listeners, Julie's Bicycle is a non-profit formed to mobilise the arts and culture sector to take action on climate and ecological crisis. And is used quite a lot by the Arts Council in putting their funding frameworks and reporting and monitoring about this particular area together. So I was reading through a report and, and in it, I, I hope you don't mind me reading this one out, it's Nicholas Sirota and it's saying, we recognise the potential for the cultural sector to be exemplars in reducing its carbon impacts and to use its voice and 
position within local and international communities to hold space for conversation, advocacy and education. And I don't know how you both feel, but as I read that, I had mixed feelings. Yes, it was calling for an action, a reducing of carbon impact, but largely it felt a little bit vague and light touch and was kind of saying I felt that our role was just about telling stories and perhaps not action driven enough but I wondered what Mm. your response to that was it just felt like it's not enough that we could perhaps be doing more and this was almost telling us that our sector is there for conversation advocacy and education that's great but I don't know. What do you feel to that, Adam? I think coming back to what you were saying, Marla, that during your three years of training, there was no conversational space for this. I don't think we can expect artists to come through having had no opportunity to talk or think or create in that way and then suddenly change the world. I think there's also something else that's going on, which is that there are fantastic practitioners in the UK doing amazing things. People like Rosemary Lee and Charlotte Spencer, Simon Whitehead and Sterling Stewart up in Wales. But in some ways, these events are sort of off grid. Mm. And, you know, other people like Helen Poyner, Miranda Tufnell, these wonderful practitioners who somehow inhabit the remoter borders of the dance world, certainly the commercial dance world. These are people who are kind of somewhere out there in the bush. And it's very easy, I think, for them not to be noticed. They're doing this really important work in really innovative ways. And I think if we could bring those people into dance trainings so that students can begin to go, oh, there are people doing stuff and it's important and it could be this or it could be that. You know, all of those artists I've mentioned, their work is incredibly different. And can you explain why you think those artists in particular are doing different work relevant to this subject? What are they doing differently? They've taken their work outside of the formal dance black box spaces. So they're not drawing on those kind of heavy tech expenditures or Mm. that big carbon footprint. They're working locally. They're working in an environmentally friendly way. Charlotte has done this lovely thing of touring by bike. Probably not everyone's cup of tea, but what a brilliant way of turning that around. And then Simon and Sterling working with their local community. So really kind of doing it local yeah so they're finding different ways of pursuing that passion that we all have in dance but in a way that's kind of off grid yeah and i think it might be a really good project to bring all of those people into one space so they're more easily findable it's like they're hidden in the trees we need to make that so here in the uk we've got these artists and they're all doing ecological work and it's easy to find them and easy to bring them in or easy to go visit, see what they're doing. And if we can get that into the training of all of our dancers so that dancers can begin to go, oh, so yeah, in the three years that I'm training in a warm studio, in the three years that I'm using the theatre and all its lights, Mm -hmm. in the three years that all these companies come and visit, what's my carbon footprint? And then you're in a place that this notion that the dancers' forest could be something that every cohort of dancers creates. That's on my list of questions, and you've just opened that so brilliantly. I think it seems like the right time for you to tell us about that project, Adam, if you would. I loved the idea as I was reading it through, but I would love to really understand how that's working. You raise money to buy land, and then what happens? It's managed by dancers? How does that work? Yeah, it would be managed locally. So we've got a few sites that are kind of coming into being, and we're still slowly collecting funds the idea is that it's a rewilded or it's a forested site and you can interpret that in lots of different ways so it could be an urban site actually although that's probably going to cost more to purchase land and within that land within that contribution to rewilding and foresting there's a space reserved for movement activity or it could be theatre activity it could be any activity really it could be a picnic but the notion that when we're thinking about rewilding and tree planting it's like around here where I live you know wonderful forest areas and every now and then you'll come across a space where you think oh that would be great but there aren't permissions Mm. to use it but here we're thinking okay so if we can purchase a small area of land and rewild and preserve within it a low impact space for dance activity, or it could be a Tai Chi class or a yoga class. So I suppose it's not radically different from the Victorian parks, you know, green space where people can connect with nature. But I'm still waiting for a university to go, oh, yeah, we could do that because I think it is so doable and it would begin to be something that the students over their three years can feel, yeah, yeah, when I finish my degree, when I finish my training, 
we'd created X acres of forest. And that's something I can come back in 10, 15 years time when I've got my kids. And this is where I studied. And this is the forest that we grew. So is it, Adam, you're perching your land, a cohort of dancers are rewilding it. But within that, you're trying to make a performance space. Yeah, the idea is that the spaces would be usable in an informal way for anybody who wanted to wander in and do something there, just in the way that a park is. Mm. But the vision is that you could have lots of these little spaces, and I'm sure some already exist, so that small-scale touring, the like of Charlotte's bicycle model, could move around a region and do little performances in outdoor spaces. You've then got a model that works for your region, Mm. and then that would encourage artists to go, oh, yeah, we could make a piece that would tour. And, you know, all of our regions have enough artists who struggle to find places to perform. But if you go, oh, yeah, there's this summer festival of small-scale works And people know that on a Sunday afternoon, there's going to be a performance in that space. Mm. And it just becomes part of that regional culture. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think as we really deep dive into the potential that this actually offers, which is a weird thing, isn't it? The potential this offers to care about our planet, it showcases a whole load of new business ideas and operational ideas. So actually anyone who's also looking at the bottom line, which actually most of us are because we're all trying to exist, can do so in creative ways. And when you were talking earlier about that kind of local working if we were all focusing our art and our energies on our local areas it frees up other areas for other people to focus theirs rather than trying to grow and spread and take over the world as perhaps we have been doing what's your reaction to the dancers forest marla how does that interact with what you're doing because what i realized is there's a sense of well-being threading through some of this and when i read about the dancers forest it felt like a lovely place to be and i know that your podcast a little bit of lagum is that how to pronounce it lagum Lagum. (laughs) a little bit of lagum is also focusing on that intersection of well-being and environmental responsibility yeah no I loved hearing about that concept so much and I think as well recognizing that it doesn't have to be a sacrifice to care and look after the environment and foster communities of collective care and support for one another like it isn't a sacrifice it's such a beautiful thing to do and I think a model like that really shows that and highlights that and it made me think of a recent project that I did called Glanio which means landing in Welsh and that was a site-specific performance in a rural community called Llandrindod in rural mid Wales that was then engaging those communities in reconnecting with nature in a different way in a very familiar space and it was happening around the time of COP26 so the conference of parties which happens every year where leaders from all over the world come and talk about what they're going to do about the climate and yeah we then ended just a little gathering at the end and had conversations about people's experiences and their feelings and after having witness something like that what came up for them what did it make them think about differently and and I think the idea of having spaces like Adam was saying would allow projects like that to continue going to communities engaging with community and leaving these little seeds that can then hopefully grow into something really meaningful that then happens in those communities so I think yeah that's a really really incredible thing and really focusing on the collective care and well-being is such an important part it's so in tandem with caring for our environment and keeping that moving forwards. And I think sometimes a lot of action feels very fear-driven and overwhelming because it is terrifying where we're at, but we need to come back to the recognising that we need communities of care for one another and support for one another. Otherwise, it can feel so overwhelming and like nothing can be done. So I think that's a really essential part in that. I love that phrase, Marla, fear-driven. I think you're so right. And I think for me, that's perhaps what's shifted so much in this last couple of years. And I've even heard environmentalists talk about this, that they're not always so good at getting their message across that doesn't sound intimidating and scary even though, as you say, we are dealing with a very scary thing. And I've often said the government have had that eat five fruit and veg a day campaign going for a long time about healthy eating. And there's no scientific background for having five fruit and veg. It's just a nice, easy messaging marketing number. But there's something about the ease of that concept that we can take on, you know, my five a day. And if we could do something that was similar around environment, it might help get that message across. But in a way, lockdown did some of that for us, didn't it? It showed us how that intersection of well-being, going to your parks, that's the only place you can go to escape your four walls, enjoying what you see there, and then caring about what you see there. Because then when you see litter everywhere, you get really cross because that's a spot 
spot that you're in, but you might have walked past that before. I don't know. It feels like something has shifted. And maybe that's due to human selfishness that we've always got to relate it back to. How does this affect my personal life? (laughs) But I think it's more fundamentally recognising the connections and where things come from. Because in society, generally, we're so distanced from the reality of where things come from or how they're disposed of. And actually closing that gap, which I think connecting with your natural environment can often do, is a really important part of that process because I think if a lot of people really looked at the source of where the things that they purchase come from or where things end up or the processes that go into creating things then you'd have a very different relationship with how you interact with the world around you with the choices you make every day so that importance of closing the gap and having those experiences that really connect you with fundamentally our relationship with each other and the natural world that I think we have become so distanced from because of very exploitative extractivist processes and consumerism and all of that that closing those gaps and really thinking about the origin of things and prioritizing circularity rather than linear economy like all of that starts to become more recognizable Mm. because you've recognized it on kind of micro level I I suppose absolutely tell us a little bit about your podcast and how that fits into all of this Mm. for you I'm imagining that actually you use that as a platform to share some of this learning and realization that you're talking about now so the podcast I actually started it during the lockdown because it was this thing of we can't connect with people so much anymore and there's all of this information that you know I'm learning about other people are learning about and how can we collectively learn and reflect on those things and have it inform things moving forward so yeah it started during the lockdown and it was very much focused on having a more like human approach to climate conversations really focusing on the environmental and social connections when we talk about climate justice so it's a lot of interviews with really incredible activists or people working within different sectors and what they're doing to take climate action on collective levels on local levels on more un levels and things like that and just having different conversations so uh interviewed people like an environmental lawyer on the Stop Ecoside campaign, someone who works on a project that's bringing music as a form of climate education and making action be facilitated in that way. I spoke to Farah Ahmed, who works for Julie's Bicycle, who was talking a lot around climate justice within the arts. Mm. And yeah, just some incredible youth activists as well. Some people who were just overwhelmed by the state of the world and wanted to do something. So for example, one of these people set up a sort of pledge to make one change every day as a family. And then they were looking back on where they'd been after that year and what they'd achieved, what had changed in their thinking around getting more involved in community action as well uh, and engaging more in their community and having difficult conversations with family members or people they worked with and just normalizing that conversation and so yeah just quite a range of different people that I spoke to and I thought of one quote that Joyce Mendes who is one of the activists that I talked to that I think really encapsulates the well-being perspective as well is that she said how can we build a sustainable world if we can't be sustainable in ourselves Mm. and I think that that's something to really reflect Mm. upon in everything that we do that we need to make sure that the way we approach things from a well-being perspective, that we're sustaining ourselves, we're ensuring our communities can be, from a well-being perspective, really supported and having those spaces for care and valuing that is a really essential part in building a more sustainable future. That's a lovely way of putting that. And I was thinking too as well, as you were talking about that pledge that the family had, about how empowering that is, because I think another thing, we talk about environmental and well-being, but there's also anxiety, isn't there, that comes with this impending doom when we want to really see it in its full force and having read Greta Thunberg's well actually it was written by her parents House on Fire it was the anxiety that was driving Greta Thunberg to make change and I imagine that feeling like you are doing something even however small or incremental I love the fact that that was something that would be building over time then it can help to relieve perhaps a little of that anxiety Adam just scooting back to you again in the Dancers Forest so what stage is that project at and what's stopping it or what's enabling it it's still quite early days one site is already there and that's in west berkshire and that site was actually given by a dance colleague who just said we have some land we'd like to give this to the dancers forest so we've got one site that's there and it's very beautiful we haven't yet leveled out the performance area but that will happen The original site was going to be on a place called Coombs Head Rewilding. But because they're doing a lot of rewilding with wildlife, 
they have to kind of fence things in fairly dramatically. And so there was this point where we just kind of go, ah, (laughs) this isn't quite going to have that access that we thought it was going to be. But they're continuing in their own way there. I think we've definitely helped them think that through and move on. And we've got eyes on a site on the River Tavy, which is just across into Devon here, which is a piece of land that's been rescued. So we're still early stages. I suppose what's holding it back, I think I'd just love to see more people go, this is something we could do, that given time and enough small donations, this is something we could do. We could get our institution involved in this. We could get our university involved in this. You know, for me, every workshop that I do, for example, I ask people to make a donation of a pound towards their traveling and, you know, just getting there and heating the space and all of those things. And I then double that from my earnings. So every little project I do puts a little bit of money into the Dancer's Forest. And, you know, it's small, but there's a lovely book. I don't know if you ever came across it called The Man Who Planted Trees. It's beautiful. It it was written, I think, just after the Second World War. And it's about a shepherd who every day he goes up into the mountains and he takes a bag full of acorns and he just pops them in the ground. And he does this over years. And it's the story of a man who meets him and then comes back many years later and finds out what he's done. So I think it doesn't matter if things take time, you know, trees take time. Again, it's, you know, coming back, the notion of fear driven or inspired driven. And I think this is going to become more and more important. I worked you know, when I was working more in Japan, I worked with, it's a phenomenon called hikikomori, which means hermit syndrome. And it's having a huge impact in Japan of young people who are simply not going out anymore. They're not leaving their rooms. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of young people in Japan. And it's been noticed in Japan because I think it's happening here too. But it's been noticed in Japan because of the social structure of Japanese culture, where people are expected to be much more contributory and social. So it was picked up there. But it's about, I think, young people just kind of freezing in a way, confronted with so many insoluble problems Mm. that it's easier just not to go out in the world. And I think it's happening here. We probably haven't noticed it. We just put it down to, yeah, it's just teenage behavior. But I think it's probably a lot worse than that. I notice it. You can't help but notice it. I walk through the village every day. I don't see children playing. When I was a kid, you'd go out of your front door and there would be kids in the street playing. That seems to have gone. So we're facing, I think, a very similar problem. And we need to reach not just, you know, young people in dance training, but we need to be communicating really from the word go. Mm. Again, dance has so much to offer here, so much. We can bring dance skills into schools. We can show and introduce ways of connecting, of being, yeah, of diversity, social diversity, racial diversity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What I wanted to pick up on is how do we turn the tide? So we've all been talking about what we've been grappling with, how lockdown and the pandemic has perhaps shifted uh, behaviours. But I also wanted to find out from both of you what you felt we should be doing as a sector that could be adding to positive change. One of the things that you've mentioned, Adam, is through that training. And I think the creativity of artists is something that perhaps that Nicholas Sorota quote didn't quite pick up on I don't think it's just those things I don't think it's just artists making work or even being responsible in themselves you know thinking about their plastic their offsetting I think it's also that they've got creative brains (laughs) and so therefore might be able to think their way through some really interesting projects and problems as you've both done with the way that you're approaching your own work just being able to think about things differently but one of the things that has been troubling me I suppose is that it's very easy to talk about needing to do something differently but then actually seeing people do that is where I feel there's a bit of a disconnect and if I can give you an example Greenwich Dumps built a platform during the pandemic called Arts Unboxed which was designed to navigate us through Covid but also as a response to the climate crisis so it was talking about touring ideas rather than people so what it was is is rethinking intellectual property artists 
boxing up their ideas for performance or participation in a way that other artists and producers and casts could download and reproduce in other areas. It goes back to that hyper-local thing that you were talking about, Adam, that actually we can't have a global audience and serve it all ourselves. We can recognise that we're not going to go into competition with anybody else and their audiences because I work in Greenwich, you work in Devon, you know, we're not talking about the same audiences. So if we're doing the same project, actually, that's okay. And I could use Greenwich based dancers, and you could use Devon based dancers, and then we're giving double the amount of dancers the work rather than moving one set around all the time. And that's all well and good. And it's got challenges. We're right at the beginning of that new model and trying things out. But I've been hearing the sector in their response to it going, we must tour differently and then going, oh, but we don't need more ideas. And so there's a bit of me going, sorry, where's the bit where you're going to be touring differently? What's that idea looking like for you? And I wondered how you're feeling as you're both out front there trying to do something different. What's the reaction you're getting? And what sort of difference do you really want to see those organisations you're working with or those dancers you're working with starting to actually do rather than talk about what are we not doing that we should be doing? Yeah, I think it's a really, really interesting question and a really important one that is addressed. And I think it is something that will look different for each project. It's going to be something that's so context specific as well. And I think that the more that there can be brainstorming spaces for how to do things differently and proposals of what that is, the better so that people can continue learning from each other. And I think it does come back to that collaboration and sharing of ideas and not being very precious and insular about this is the way we've done it. And now this is our thing. you know but really like opening up and recognizing that if it's a way of working that is better for the environment and engages a community in a different way then it's really important to address that and for me personally obviously I freelance sometimes working for other choreographers sometimes involved in creating my own work so that framework also looks very differently and especially as well thinking of myself as a freelancer I guess sometimes depending financially you have more autonomy over what you think would be working with someone who would listen to you or has values around those things and would make changes. Whereas sometimes I suppose if you work for a company and your company decides they're doing an international tour, that's quite a difficult situation as well. So I do think it's something that is very specific to different sectors. And I think for some companies, maybe they will come to a conclusion where a national tour is something that they will still do reduce maybe international touring but focus on more of a sustainable touring route so that rather than going back and forth over time they can structure it in a way if they do decide that that's still something that they want to do for other companies it might be that they decide to engage a lot more with their locality and perform more within their local community create work in collaboration with the community and maybe thinking of it differently in that way but for other organizations it might also be that they really want to focus on what their role could be in another capacity. So obviously reducing emissions from touring is something that will be a part of what they do fundamentally, but what other areas of the work that they do as a company are things that they want to focus on changing? How can they influence their different spheres of engagement? So how do they engage with their audiences in these kind of conversations? How do they engage with people they source materials from? How do they collaborate within the community to share resources rather than specifically just purchasing it? How do maybe they engage in having development days for their staff which are focused around raising awareness about these issues or getting involved in a community project locally together having a day where everyone goes and gets involved in a tree planting initiative or gets involved with another grassroots organization that are doing work maybe building connections with grassroots organizations that maybe aren't artists but then collaborate with artists and create a really interesting insightful piece of work because you're learning from each other in the process and finding ways of expressing and sharing information can be really really valuable Mm. but I think a big thing as well is empowering people you work with whether that's people you commission or whether that's staff that work on a full-time basis to learn about these things because the more information you have the more empowered you are to come up with new ways of working and reimagine things because you feel more confident in the knowledge you have to move forwards in a positive way and um, I hope that kind of answers your question yeah 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 it's a complex one though isn't it Adam how about you what sort of change would you like to see individual dancers and organizations taking on or embracing well I concur with what Marla was saying I think every project demands its own particular thinking and I think the thing that the pandemic again trying to draw on the positives the thing that the pandemic did for all of us was it made us look at what was under our nose 
So rather than kind of going, oh, you know, we, we have got to send to this country or go, you know, I need to, we need to go. It was all, no, no, you can't do that. Mm. So it did that lovely thing of, if there were these great examples of musicians beginning to play music and that people in the street didn't know that that person was a musician. I think that was the most exciting thing. Or people began to value these little green spaces that they had and turn them into something beautiful. Two of my boys, well, all my boys, they're musicians. I knew that there was a dancer who lived down the lane. They were thinking of doing a dance video. And I said, why don't you get in touch with Lloyd? He's just down, you know. And they got together with a camera and their music and a dancer. And they made a beautiful little dance music video. Similarly, when I started doing the research on the dancers project, I thought, who's local? So I got two dancers from two neighboring villages to work with. And I, you know, I wouldn't have thought that way before. Mm, mm. I would have been thinking, oh, right, got a project on, got to audition, got to, you know, yeah. do this. Pulling dancers from wherever, but instead you were yeah. reframing it with yeah. locality first and then yeah. finding your talent, which I suppose was there. I imagine that you were pleased with There all the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what that made me think is how many more really interesting people are living within a couple of miles that I don't know about, that I haven't found. As you said earlier, you know, we used to think about success in terms of how far we've toured. Well, maybe we have to rethink that. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we've got to have the funding models there that support that. And that's got to not be driven by us trying to achieve, as you say, somebody else's measurable, which might be where have you toured, let's tick off all the countries. But actually, how many people have you been able to bring in from your locality? Which might mean that funders need to think differently about attendances versus individual people, because, you know, success might look to us re-engaging the same 50 over and over rather than more and more 50. So perhaps it's a different way of people looking at the work we're doing. But it sounds from talking to you two that the ideas are there about how we might be able to do this differently. I did find it interesting to look at the green rider that Julie's bicycle had on their website as a resource, which I also thought shifted the power a little bit. So it was a kind of a list of things that it suggested companies might put to a venue it was touring to like you would a rider. So instead of your bottles of water for their cast they're thinking very carefully about not asking for bottles of water but you know for making sure that there's a water fountain there or whatever and it went on there was one that did make me smile no idling policy for production vans and I thought that's the company telling the venue that that's what it wants them to have but it did make me think yeah there's an interesting dialogue here as I said it's shifting the power but also I wonder what that would look like if individual dancers coming back to your point Marla at the beginning about group action and individual action but if an individual artist that we were going to engage to just perhaps teach on our youth program was to say yes of course I would love to teach for you but here's my rider and this is what I expect of you as an organization that might be a little bit like oh at first but actually I wonder if that could be quite an encourageable thing to say you know you do have the power to say I want to work for an organization that has these credentials so if you show me that you have these and make sure that these are in place you're someone I'd like to be working for so perhaps artists have got more power than they perhaps recognize there in forcing organizations to change so I recognize I've kept you for about an hour so it feels like we're nearing a good time to stop but as many of these podcasts do they always seem to end up somewhere around technology because we've learned so much about that in this last couple of years. And also knowing that we've got a fellow podcaster here who's found technology as a way to get your voice out there. I just wondered, what do you think we could be drawing upon that we've experienced in the last couple of years about technology that we might be able to use as we reduce our impact? And again, Adam, I can't remember if it was in your blog or somewhere where I read that at first you were quite anti, I think, the idea of teaching online. And then actually when you had a go, as you rightfully said within this piece, it didn't seem to be resonating with the way you practice and your values and what you're trying to get across and the experience you wanted people to have in a room. But as soon as you'd rethought that, suddenly the benefits of not having to travel to Canada that morning <laughs> kind of outraged and you found a new way so I wondered if you'd both perhaps just expand on what you've learned about technology and how that's helped you change your practice and perhaps how that might help us as a sector Adam do you want to talk about that experience Mm, yeah I have to confess I'm still not a great fan but I was prompted by a group in Texas not only was it during the pandemic it was during Trump's worst part well I think it was all bad wasn't it really I just got this request we just need something and I thought well okay I'll see what I can do and it 
kind of spurred me to think, okay, how do I use the technology? How do I find a way to communicate through this screen? And it really did make me reinvent my practice in a way that I haven't had to for a long time and come up with things that were new. So in that way, I'm grateful. But I think we have to, I don't want to sound like a Luddite or a technophobe, but I think we have to tread carefully because again, as Marla was saying earlier on, everything is connected and the supply chains that give us these wonderful gadgets are highly suspect. So our electric cars and our smartphones and our computers, mm, they all come from somewhere. They're not just pretty things that we take off a shelf. So I think also the notion of technology, which has been incredibly liberating for many of my disabled colleagues, you know, it's transformed their world. But those hundreds of thousands of young people in Japan and elsewhere around the world are not just stuck alone in their rooms. They're stuck alone in their rooms with their screens. Mm. So I think it's a really double-edged sword. And uh, we, again, have to think carefully about each instant and whether we want to engage with technology, how we want to engage with it, and whether it's building a dependence or whether it's offering a new avenue, a new opportunity. That's a really good phrase. And I check myself, even when we talk about having meetings, it's so easy to have a Zoom meeting now rather than not bother to go out and meet someone. And then when you do just make that extra effort, what it can give you is tenfold, isn't it? And it, mm. yes, I can see that that's a very easy trap to slide down. Marla, how about you? What's your thoughts about technology and in the environment and how useful or not useful it might be? I very much agree with Adam in a lot of ways. And ironically enough, although I have a podcast, I'm also also a bit of a technophobe and I think there are very tricky territories that we do need to be careful of as Adam's already hinted at when we think about all of the precious earth metals within these devices how they're extracted which is often tied to a lot of human rights violations there's a lot of work to be done there as well but at the same time it has opened up a lot of avenues for connecting people resource sharing having information and access to things that weren't possible before but on the alternative side if we become too reliant on technology digital poverty is still a thing there are people that can't have access to the internet regularly or consistently and actually having human interaction is so important mm -hmm. and there's a risk that if we become too reliant on the notion of we can do this online or we can do this without having to engage with someone in the room that could be that person's only interaction of being in the room with someone and sharing an experience so I think it is that thing of really questioning is this opening up another avenue that makes this either more accessible or more environmentally viable but what does it also detract it's going to be a constantly weighing up the pros and cons and really thinking about a responsible way of using technology because it can also be a very scary dangerous place as well. Hmm. Well that does feel like a good place to stop we've looped back to that word responsibility. So if you would like to hear more episodes about subjects moving artists of today, search for Talking Moves wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. And if you'd like to be part of the Arts Unbox family and do dance differently with us at Greenwich Dance, email us at info at greenwichdance.org.uk with podcast in the title and we'll get in touch. But for today, that's it from us and do join us next time for more Talking Moves. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. It's been enlightening. Thank you.